Acts chapter 2, verse 14 to 40. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children 
and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Thank you so much, Lydia, for praying. And please do keep your Bibles open, uh, whether you've got them uh, in the Blue Bibles or on your phone, uh, whatever you're using at the moment. Um, that'd be great as we continue in Acts chapter 2. Um, how many of you have had the opportunity to, to visit the Tate Modern down in, in London? Uh, just out of interest, it's a place I've always wanted to go. Um, and haven't had the opportunity yet, but there's a, a particular piece of art that I'd love to see there. It's something that catches not only your eyes, but your ears too. As journalist Ollie Gudgeon describes in one article, he says, there's a piece of art, it's 800 radios. Bake lights, vintage radios, art deco, retro plastic. They're gathered around a metal frame and they form a tower that's over uh, three meters tall. These large, old radios line the bottom of the tower. Then as you go up, you get smaller radios, newer ones or whatever. And uh, what's really interesting is that all of these radios are switched on. They're all on. They're all tuned into uh, a station, a network somewhere around the world. Voices, music, radio pops, there's sort of, it just hisses with all this sound and noise. And this is a Brazilian artist, Sildo Morella's installation, and he's called it Babel. He's named it after the Genesis story. These radios are all tuned into different networks so that you just get this stream of different languages pouring out, filling the room and the space. Onlookers are immersed in this overload. And uh, I suppose as you're there, and this is what I'd like to experience, I, I imagine you hear that and you're trying to search for a connection. You're listening for something familiar. You're trying to recognize something to make sense of it all, find that meaning. And it's interesting that the art here provokes emotion. It will provoke questions, being in that room, hearing all this. But it doesn't provide an explanation. Even looking at the walls around it, you know, it's not like there's a sort of, this is why this art was happening and here are some questions to help you understand it, all this. No. You go and you encounter it, experience it, and you've got to find meaning. Now in Acts 2, Luke doesn't make this overt connection with Babel from Genesis 11, with the tower there. It's not overt, but it's understandable that many commentators have looked at that connection. They see it as Pentecost, as we started to look at last week, this outpouring of God's Spirit, where these languages were spoken miraculously by Galilean disciples, that the commentators can see here in, in, in Pentecost, and we can see that there's maybe an undoing of what's going on in Babylon and, and at the Tower of Babel, as people from different languages become united hearing God's praises spoken in their own tongues. So in Acts 2, we're in Jerusalem, probably around May 33 AD. The city's population of 55 swells to over 200,000, 55,000 to over 200,000, as visiting worshippers are gathering for this harvest celebration taking place at the temple. And as Luke's told us, we know that there's another harvest that's being gathered 
as a world-changing event takes place. Verses 6 to 8. Let's just see that again in chapter 2, a little bit before what we had read to us. When they heard this sound, that was of the the wind of um, people speaking in different languages, and there's also what looked like tongues of fire coming down on the disciples, 128 gathered um, probably in the temple precinct. Uh, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that they, each of us, hears them in our native language? You see, this miracle revealed at this finale Pentecost Harvest Festival, people spanning most of the Roman and Parthian empires... Um, So again, just here's a bit of a map of uh, the Mediterranean and the Middle East and the area that we're talking about. And you can see there in the highlighted box, we're zooming in on Jerusalem. But people from the surrounding regions would have been there in Jerusalem. And they hear their own languages declaring the praises of God for his wonderful works, verse 11. But these words of praise were from the mouths of the most unlikely people, uneducated Galileans. What is going on here? These unlikely messages are fulfilling Psalm 105, verse 1, written by David centuries earlier. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Tell of all his wondrous acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Isn't it great that here we see uh, in this psalm uh, a fulfillment taking place? And we could describe um, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 2 almost like a spontaneous, multilingual, uh, a multi-ethnic praise service. Uh, And given that the number of people there, as I said earlier, probably took place around the temple somewhere, whether in the precinct or around there, where there would have been this crowd already gathering. And this spectacular sight, this experience, this amazed and impressed people. But then there were still others, we're told, who were bewildered or literally troubled in verse 12 by it. That is, they were under conviction. That word trouble, bewildered, has a sort of, there's something working on them. They're wrestling with this. They're under God's conviction. And then there's other people, verse 13, who just mock. They laugh. They dismiss it. They're drunk. You see, it wasn't enough just to be at the event. It wasn't enough to be there in the crowd and see it. It needed, this event needs an authoritative explanation in order to understand what God's purposes are here. Event plus explanation equals God's revelation. Event, explanation equals God's revelation. That's what we have in the Bible, making sense ultimately of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection to give us God's revelation for us. And the confusion here, though, therefore wasn't over the language, but what is going on? What is the meaning? What does this mean? Verse 12 is the question on everyone's lips and on their minds. The crowd wanted answers. And that's the context in which Peter steps up. To represent the disciples here, he steps up to answer. So let's look at this uh, first sermon This speech will break it down, but we'll see it answers two questions that come up, driven by the crowd. And the first question is there, what does this mean? What does this mean? And 
what Peter starts to unpack in these verses from 14 to 21 is the world has changed. And the world has changed because God is doing a miraculous, dramatic thing. He is pouring himself out to all people. Verse 14, what does Peter say there? Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Can you see that in, in, even straight off, in this extraordinary, mind-blowing event, there's, there's order. Peter's standing up. It's not chaotic. He's saying, I'm going to now explain. Listen. Switch on. Listen to what I say. Firstly, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's straightforward. Now, I know on match days here in Manchester, nine in the morning is quite late for some. It just shows our cultural differences. But he goes, no, don't, don't throw that at us. That's not what's going on. Let's open up the Bible. What this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Straight away, can you see how Peter is making a connection? He's tackling the issue the crowd were thinking about. Are we drunk? Verse 15. He doesn't ignore the elephant in the room. He doesn't do a politician's answer avoiding the uncomfortable issue. He starts where they are. And he addresses the issue they're interested in. And, and just for, uh, as church family, those who've been walking with Christ for a few years, maybe several years, have you noticed that gospel sharing tends to happen in the context of an experience that provokes more questions? It can take you by surprise as well. Because you, oh, oh, we're having that conversation now. But it's great. When friends, family, relatives, people near us, whether it's colleagues, there's something that provokes them. Maybe it's something they're experiencing. Maybe it's something they've read. Maybe it's something they've heard. And they want an answer. We can't sidestep that. One example sticks in my mind. I'm sorry, I've mentioned it before, so sorry for repeating myself. But I, I, just, I have to keep reminding myself of these extraordinary moments in the ordinary where we see God at work. I was, when I worked in Manchester's business sector, I was out on a night out attending an awards ceremony, and I'm in a bar afterwards with some friends from a, a law firm. I was stone cold sober. You can judge where they were at on that range, but um, I was with some folk that I know well, and we were chatting away, and just sort of, it was after the awards ceremony, and I start chatting to a guy who I just met then, who was working at a private equity firm in town, and he asked me what, who I worked for, uh, and I just thought, yeah, I'll answer this way, I just said, God, um, you know, and got the peculiar look or whatever from him, it was like, strange, what, what are you on, sort of thing, um, and then I explained a little bit more, no, no, seriously, uh, I, I'm a vicar, and I help people consider connection between God, faith, and their work. And he went, oh, right. He sort of made a little bit more sense, but he was still perplexed. Anyway, um, the conversation moved on. He moved on into a different crowd. But then he came back to me he, uh, and a few minutes later or whatever. And he said, I'm heading off, but here's my business card. Let's meet for a coffee. And so we did. And I started to meet up with him every so often, uh, maybe once a week, once a month, it depended on his diary. We would read a bit of John's gospel, stayed in contact for over four or five years. 
walk through bereavement with him, walk through getting married, changing jobs, all of it looking at where God was in all of that and whether he could accept and trust Jesus' good news. To be honest, seeds were sown. I wouldn't say, I'm not sort of saying, oh yeah, and he's walking with the Lord and he's making Christian businesses like Harry's haircut and stuff like this. I don't know where he is in that sense. I saw progress, but there's stress and pressure and things like this in life that raise more questions, and it was for a season. But there was a connection point. There was something intriguing. Let's pray for more of those. We need to look for those connection points with people. We need to take seriously the questions, the issues, the encounters they're having. Wasn't it great to hear just from that missions video, Mary working out that gift of her art of wanting to use calligraphy as a connection point to help people to, as a ministry in their mental health, to somehow put into pictures ways of connecting with the hurt and the stuff that people are dealing with, to then build bridges that might, by God's grace, help people find more of his love, his healing, his truth. You see, Peter's... First letter written later after this incident to the Christians living in Turkey. You'll find it in 1 Peter. These these Christians are facing tough times. And this is what he says in chapter 3 of the letter. Even if you suffer for what is right, you you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Can you see that Peter here, the apostle who was speaking on Pentecost, who's then writing decades later to Christians facing persecution, expects the way that Christians are living their good lives in tough circumstances, even when they're suffering, will provoke and raise questions in their non-Christians' minds, in, in their friends around them. So why do you seem so peaceful when life is so rubbish for you? Why don't you get even or or send someone over to sort out that guy when they've ripped you off? It's that sort of stuff. The questions are an open door to share the hope of Jesus Christ. And Peter actually says, at that point, you need to be able to give a reason why you have a hope in Christ. You might not be able to answer all the questions. He's not expecting us to be some intellectual super heavyweight on all this. Just tell the truth even if they then use that against you, even if that leads to more suffering. Because God is with you and will bless you. You have a saviour who went there first. So as a church together, we should expect and want people who don't believe what we believe to be present here with us, looking on. Even on a Sunday, the way we sing, the way we speak to each other, the way we pray, the way we welcome, the way we serve coffee and tea, the way we look after the children, why we focus on the Bible so much and Jesus' gospel, all of this should provoke questions and we welcome them. They should be connection points. And thank you if you're here visiting and, and that sort of describes you. You're a blessing to us. Thank you for being here. 
it should provoke questions and intrigue, even frustration, and also a warmth in connection and a longing for something more. That's what's going on with the crowd here as well. We need to make time during the week for people to ask us what this means, not to rush off. Why is your faith so important? Why do you do this stuff? It might not come frequently, but we should be prepared and expectant for it when it does. And so Peter here then moves his Jewish and Gentile convert, these Gentile converts to Judaism, to the scriptures. He, why does he go there? Well, because it's what they recognize. He explains what's going on from an authority they already take. They recognize the scriptures. And this quotation from Joel chapter 2, there in verses 17 through to 20, in all that great, colorful, apocalyptic language of, of wonders of blood and fire and billows of smoke in verse 19, of a, a universality of people who are encountering God and have a ministry of his word, that what Joel was seeing centuries earlier, a prediction of a future era when God himself pours himself out with the Holy Spirit, not on certain leaders like they were used to in the Old Testament, a king here like David or Saul or Moses, a leader here, or, or Joshua as he takes the people into the promised land, or a priest, a high priest doing some work at some point. The Holy Spirit would come, equip, and then depart at points. No, this is, an, this is a grander operation. Men and women, young and old, all who are God's servants, filled with God's presence. You see, Jesus sending the Holy Spirit is world-changing because a new era has begun. Pentecost marks this. There's a book you can buy on Amazon, uh, 50 World-Changing Events, and I was flicking through it, and to be fair, the author put in there stuff like the death of Jesus and other things, as well as 9-11 and various other things. You just think, wow, 50, you can boil it down to that. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of world-changing events, aren't there? We forget what Alexander the Great did for us, in fact, with uh, you know, creating these sort of trade routes, which actually centuries later then helped the gospel spread, creating a common economic language, Greek, which the scriptures were written in, and that spread out through that. Alexander the Great probably didn't even think he was going to have that legacy. All of these world-changing moments. But here at Pentecost, we're seeing something enormous happen. God's spirit in normal people. The promise of more. People from different backgrounds, ethnicities, languages, ages, bearing witness to the fact that God's salvation in Jesus Christ is here for us. And what Joel saw happening in a distant future, Peter says, happens in the, right there. And continues. Start something that cannot be stopped. There is a Lord who reigns. And if men and women turn from their sin to him, they will be forgiven. There is life in the kingdom. Restored. Peace filled. A new heavens, new earth. And a victory that will come. That is the final day that Joel was looking towards. And which Peter says at Pentecost is assured. Is coming. But then we have to ask ourselves, well, who is this Lord? Because isn't it interesting that in this sermon, 
And as Christians, a lot has been written about the Holy Spirit based on on what we're reading here in Acts 2, understandably. But Peter's focus isn't necessarily on the Holy Spirit as such, but on the focus of who the Holy Spirit takes us to, the Lord Jesus. And so more space in this sermon, and what we have here is the the sort of highlights. It's not everything Peter said. We we get that from from verse 40, where he said, with many other words, he pleaded. And so, so what we're getting here is Luke's extended highlights, the best bits, giving us a structure. And, and here's what Peter sort of preached on and then obviously expanded on. And at other points, you know, I can't write it all down for you. But then we'll see Peter doing more preaching. And as we go through Acts, we get a really good picture of the themes, the sort of directions that Paul, Peter, Stephen, others um, went through as they shared the gospel. But let's look at these highlights. So we see here the highlights of who Jesus is. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves known. So Jesus' life and teaching is something that Peter then moves from, talking about the ministry of God pouring himself out. Let's look at where we see that ultimately in the Savior. His signs, his wonders were God-given. He was a unique person. And Peter states, as you know, interesting, as you know. There'll be many in that crowd who probably had first-hand experience of Jesus in some way. Not everyone, but some who were in the region, in Jerusalem, who had seen him, maybe even seen the crucifixion seven weeks earlier and saw the events around it. Maybe saw what he did in the temple, turning out the the, um, tradespeople, and calling down judgment, and then doing healings and stuff like this. Verse 23, so they had first-hand experience. But verse 23, Jesus' death was no accident, we read there. It was purposed by God. Interestingly, Peter, when he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross here, he doesn't say much about how, how it was accomplished you know, the salvation that came from it. He doesn't go on about the substitution or the atonement or um, the ransom. I mean, that comes out clearly in his letters. But here, he highlights the power of God and the plan of God. God was sovereign over this. Now, I've cut out three and a half pages on human responsibility and God's sovereignty (laughs) that I had written because that's a big issue. And I have produced a little article with some resources there. If you want to take it, I'll I'll try and make sure I've put them out on the table or down at the coffee table. If you want to take away something that, just to start thinking more deeply about, well, how how does that work? A God who's in charge of everything, but we have free will, we we have responsible choice. How does that come out here? Because Peter doesn't duck it. He just says, it is God's plan. And then we see how human leaders willingly, freely crucified an innocent man. And yet this holds together. He focuses on the primacy of of God's set purpose, his foreknowledge, before the creation of the world, without diminishing human responsibility. So wicked men, that's Judas, driven by financial gain. Herod, for his power and and his his place within the society, let's preserve that. And for Pilate, the governor of Rome, uh, sorry, a Roman governor of Judea, who was looking for the most expedient way to keep peace, just let's not have a riot. 
I can't get in trouble with my boss. What can they do to keep things as they want? Well, we'll kill this man then. They didn't feel their arm, sorry, was twisted behind their back. They did it completely of their volition in accordance with what they wanted. And isn't it more cutting? And I hope you felt the weight of this as Lydia was reading uh, the passage. But that there was an active complicity in the killing of Jesus, which Peter just broad brushstrokes, whoom, everyone. Did you notice that? He said, you, verse 22, verse 36, says, you crucified him to the crowd. Now, these crowds in Jerusalem were from far away. And, and given the crucifixion was several weeks ago, most of the crowd wouldn't have, wouldn't have been around at the crucifixion. So this isn't an anti-Jewish put-down. It's not saying that the Jews killed Christ. We have to look beyond the immediate context right here, the, the setting. We have to look to the biblical principle here. How can Peter say, you crucified him, you are responsible to the crowd? They weren't driving the nails in. They might not have been in the mobs shouting for him to be crucified. This is part of the gospel message for every human being, you see. We all need to hear that our sin, our rebellion, our failure to obey God cost Jesus his life. He was dying in our place for our sin. And until we recognize and accept that, that, that we were the cause of his death, we will not be cut to the heart. We will just see it as, a, as something over there to ignore. We'll be apathetic to his rescue. Well, I didn't ask him to do it for me. How, how am I involved in this? And then in verses 24 to 32, Peter lifts our focus to Jesus' resurrection. The death, part of God's plan, Jesus voluntarily giving himself because we, in our sin, are cut off from God and this is the rescue needed to bring us back. A perfect life lived before God, given in our place. But it doesn't end there. If it did, it would be hopeless. Verses 24 to 32, Peter camps out in Jesus' resurrection. In this sermon, Luke records Peter spending more time on the resurrection than the cross. Isn't that interesting? Again, using the authority of King David, let's go back to the text. Let's go back to what you know. What does King David say? Not just a king, not just a songwriter, but a prophet, Peter said. He reasoned from the scriptures that either David, here in quoting um, Psalm uh, 16, in quoting this psalm, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Well, who is David talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And given that David was dead and buried in Jerusalem, verse 29, you could go and visit the grave. It must be someone else. Where is he preserved? 
and not abandoned. Peter, the apostles, the, the eyewitnesses around them testify they had met Jesus. He is alive. His tomb where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus laid his body was more like an Airbnb. He was just there for only two nights. It's empty. We've seen him. We've spoken. We've eaten with him. And Peter declares, Psalm 16, therefore, proves that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And as the sermon concludes, he, he lifts the crowd's focus to where Jesus is now. Look at that in verses 33 to 39. He's reigning in glory. Now, perhaps Peter here is recalling what Jesus himself did in the temple. In, in Luke 20, in that final week, he's talking with teachers of the law, the Sadducees, other religious leaders, and they're questioning him. And, and towards the end of this particular question time, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, to challenge them. He uses this. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David writing it, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he uses it to challenge the religious leaders to make a decision about Jesus's, his own identity. You want to know who I am? Let's look at Psalm 110. What do you think about this? And Peter likewise argues, if David is the preeminent king, how could he call someone else? He's the king that everyone thinks is he's the gold standard for Israel's kings, in one sense. How could he call someone else Lord, who's sitting at the Father's right hand? So there's a Lord over the Lord David. Well, because Jesus ascended to heaven. He is the one set, who has sent his spirit. What you're seeing here now shows he is exalted and reigning. What you're seeing and hearing shows he is the king sharing the father's throne. He is the one even over King David. This Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And calling on his name will save you. This is, this is where he takes the crowd with a searching question. And it wasn't because Peter was a great orator or knew all the tricks of the trade to draw people in, make them laugh, lower their defenses, then give a bit of truth, stuff like this. He was faithful and dependent on God to do his work. And isn't it interesting what comes next? A second question from the crowd. What shall we do? What shall we do? For those here who aren't Christians here at Grace Church today, on that day of Pentecost, the majority of the crowd were in the same position as you. In the same position. And each one of us, wherever we are, has to make a decision about whether King Jesus is our king. And for many, the offer of eternal life, the forgiveness in Jesus Christ, is just make-believe. There are other alternatives that are far more substantial. Um, here's a chap called uh, Professor Alex Rosenberg. He's uh, a Duke philosophy, Duke University philosophy professor, uh, hugely qualified, well-written, researched guys, published lots. He addressed a series of questions back in 2012 from his atheist perspective in The Atheist Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions. And there were several questions he just fired out, which he then addressed in more detail. But first question, is there a God? No, was his answer. What is the nature of reality? 
what physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when I die? Everything goes on pretty much as it did before, except with us. What is difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you, you don't like, forbidden, permissible, or sometimes ob uh, obligatory? His answer, anything goes. Professor Rosenberg may be refreshingly honest here, but what he seems, at least to me, seems what he suggests seems unlivable. If science and materialism is all we have, our sense of who we are, ourself, is just a strange illusion, isn't it? We don't have moral agency, and morality is just a preference which is ever-changing. Now, in stark contrast, the Apostle Peter is focusing on two historical events, Christ's death and his resurrection. He's appealing to two witnesses, the biblical promises given from the messengers living centuries before Jesus and the eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people, including himself, who met Jesus after the resurrection. And he gives a warning. He gives an uncomfortable warning. Judgment will come. There will be a meeting with Jesus face to face for every human being. The Lord of life will meet us at the end of life. There's, there isn't blank nothing. There isn't reincarnation. There isn't a warm, fuzzy light. Our rebellion and rejection of God is the reason Jesus came to save us. He went to the cross for that. And so to continue to ignore that rescue is bad news. As Adam said right at the start, Good news usually comes by facing up to some uncomfortable truth as well. But he also gives us this wonderful offer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That this, this isn't cruel. This is love. Here is the problem. Here is the solution. God-given. God-centered. God gifted. It don't, won't cost you anything. You can't earn it. Here it is. Receive. And that offer of forgiveness is as real today as it was for the crowd in Jerusalem. You see, the centuries haven't weakened it. Its power, still there. Its relevance, still real. So how do you receive it? How do we receive it? We repent. That is a complete change of mind. It is the 180, the U-turn that says, I'm sorry for how I'm being living, Father. It's a complete U-turn, a change in the way we live and think, a recognition that God is the one over our lives. We turn from a life of rejecting him and his word and running life as we want it to embracing him, taking Christ as our final authority, taking Christ as the savior, the rescuer who loves us. And this repentance and faith, because that's what it is, it's putting trust. We're saying, I'll put my weight on you, Jesus, now. This is signified in baptism, which we're celebrating next week. We've got two baptisms which we'll be celebrating here. 
And water is used as that symbol of cleansing from sin that leads, that sin that takes us to judgment and hell. That water shows it's been cleansed, it's gone. In what Jesus did, not the water, in what he did. That new life is now what we have in Jesus. And it's a sign also that we joyfully, willingly surrender our lives to the king. It's no mistake that in going underwater, there's a sign of death. But then being raised up to life. And that willingly, joyfully, I'm no longer mine but yours. Another MIT professor, a world-class plasma physician, uh, physicist, sorry, Ian Hutchinson, explains his views like this. I am an assembly of electrons and quarks interacting through quantum, cryodynamics, and electroweak forces. I haven't even got a clue what he's saying, but I think it's something scientific. I am a heterogeneous mixture of chemical elements. I am a system of biochemical processes guided by genetic codes, but I am also vast and astoundingly complex organism of cooperating cells. I am a mammal with hair and warm blood. I am a person, a husband, a lover, a father, and I am a sinner saved by grace. Hutchinson started following Jesus when he was an undergraduate at King's College in Cambridge. His Christian beliefs offer a worldview which, within which human beings cannot be reduced to purely scientific components. But we're made in God's image. We're given moral agency. We're loved by our maker to the point of a sacrificial death and a victorious resurrection. So hear these words this morning. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. Boundary breaking, isn't it? You see, King Jesus doesn't ask us to come groveling to him in the dirt. He calls you, he welcomes us with open arms, with words, I forgive you. And if he forgives, then there's no one else left to judge us. Please take this offer of his life seriously. Whether we've been walking with him for many years or not in that position yet. At Grace Church, we do want to make more time for those conversations. On Tuesday evening, online, we've got this 3-2-1 course, which Nathan and Jen are running. Come and speak to me if you would like to just drop him for one session online. You don't have to do it all. It's four weeks. But just to create a bit more space to think this stuff through, to ask your searching questions. Next week, as I said, we're celebrating two baptisms, Nileen and Christopher. Christopher's aged nine. And I've had time with him, checking out, is this for real? And it is for real. He's making a decision now that will shape the rest of his life. But he has already been called. Because the Lord's kingdom is open to all. This promise is for you and your children. So come back next week and watch this event. See why these two people want to do this. See what happens. Come back again and again and look at us as a church and say, how is this saviour changing you? What difference does he make? 
Come back and hear more next week from Acts 2 and see the impact that Jesus' good news had on 3,000 people and the way it started to disrupt and change life in Jerusalem and then some. Come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a good God. You're the Lord, the Savior over the whole of life. Father, I thank you that you are the one for whom we have so much to give thanks for and the one who has called us to life in you. Lord, be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.